0: and welcome to the Point of Care Ultrasound Certification Academy podcast where we focus on POCUS. Here we will discuss all things related to point of care ultrasound, the practice, the trends, and its impact on healthcare. Our program will engage thought leaders who are defining global patient care with the stethoscope of the future. Welcome, welcome all to the podcast, Focus on Pocus. We're today in our COVID containment triangulation. I am speaking from my home while connected across town to David at Widget Studios and speaking with our honored guest today from Arlington, Virginia, Dr. Matthew Burke. Um, Dr. Burke has received his bachelor's from Dartmouth College and his medical degree from Albany Medical College. He completed his family medicine residency is brown university and subsequently did a fellowship in primary care health policy at georgetown university through the robert graham center in washington dc he has worked in federal government academic residency practice and urgent care he served as the new physician member to the american academy of family physicians board of directors from 2016 to 2017. he is currently practicing in arlington virginia He has strong interests in the social detriments of health and, in particular, environmental detriments as the climate crisis threatens to be a public health emergency of the 21st century. And so here we are on a very hot, humid day on the eastern seaboard. And again, not to confuse climate with uh, weather. How are you today, Dr. Burke?
1: I'm doing very well, James. Thanks for having me.
0: So we normally talk a lot about, you know, medical devices like POCUS and stuff and its uh, effect and how we're using in our patient panel. But today, uh, you know, we're going to talk about uh, how do we know that this whole climate change is happening?
1: Yeah, that's a great question. So we understand climate change from a massive trove of research that has been collected since World War II um, since the 1950s, there have been over 12,000 peer-reviewed scientific papers um, addressing climate change from countries from all over the world. And 97% of those 12,000 papers say the exact same thing, um, that we oh. are, through the uh, combustion of fossil fuels and the releasing of greenhouse gases into the atmosphere over the last several decades, even before that to the dawn of the Industrial Revolution, changing the composition of our atmosphere here on planet Earth. Um, and I should say that of those 3% of papers in that cohort that disagree, they show either mixed results or have very suspicious funding mechanisms coming from industry itself. Um, that gives mm-hmm. us a lot of scientific weight um, that this is actually happening and that we are actually responsible for it.
0: Yeah, I think I remember reading a book a while ago. Uh, it was the, the the One Mile Time Machine. It was about ice core drilling and... and, uh, and uh, the Arctic Circle and Antarctica, and they got a lot of research from that. Um, isn't that where they pulled up like uh, the greenhouse gases, such as methane and stuff?
1: Yeah, so what's really interesting about um, those core ice samples from the poles is that atmospheric air, once trapped in ice and it lands at a, um, on the surface in the form of snow and ice crystals, traps those gases. Um, like you said, it's like a time machine from the ancient past. And we know that ice and snow falls at a very predictable rate in certain areas of the poles. So for however many feet you're able to drill down into the surface, you can very accurately determine where your core samples are coming from, from a time back in history. Um, they've been able, with those incredible machines that go, like you said, a mile deep, to pull ice cores out of the out of the poles that are 800,000 years old. Um, so we've been able to track the concentration of greenhouse gases and other gases um, for literally hundreds of thousands of years. Uh, now, the level of carbon dioxide in the atmosphere for you know roughly the last million years has been about 270 to 280 parts per million, um, and it has increased by a factor of more than 50% just in the latter part of the 20th century. It shot up really precipitously to now we're at the point where it's about 410 parts per million, um, those are like hard numbers to sometimes wrap your head around, but that's a very significant change. And it represents a level of CO2 in the atmosphere that the planet has not seen for at least a million years.
0: Yeah, I know. I, I'm familiar with that, that observatory in, uh, in Hawaii. Um, I think the last I remember seeing it was the CO2 was at uh, 415 parts per million at the time. I, I don't know. God knows what it is now, the way things are going
1: yeah, I think it's still in that in that area. One of the things, um, that monitoring station in Hawaii is that it's very high in the air. It's well over 10,000 feet. And Hawaii itself uh-huh. is one of the most isolated archipelagos in the world. So it's not like you're setting up a research station outside of a major industrial plant in a you know populous U.S. city. You're putting a monitoring station kind of in the middle of nowhere. Um, so you get an unadulterated picture of what an average uh, atmospheric composition looks like. There's no competing... Um, factors that are going on. So it's probably most likely a true number uh, that comes out of those stations in Hawaii.
0: Yeah, agree. Those are definitely going to be pristine metrics all the way in the middle of the Pacific Ocean. So, you know, we've kind of, uh, and we talked a little bit about this. I was a climate change leadership uh, training with Al Gore and uh, did some presentations and uh, pretty passionate, as you are, about this. And it seems like... Uh, There was a lot of rejection initially, and it seems like people are kind of, okay, all right, there is a climate change, except for these ulterior motive-funded, you know, anti-climate that we see every now. But that's sort of going away now. And I think uh, everyone is kind of coming on board and like, yeah, the climate is changing. We're exacerbating a natural cycle. Um, And just what do you think, as a physician especially, the major areas— that affect us as, you know, human beings walking around on the big blue marble here.
1: (laughs) I like the way you put that. Yeah, and I (laughs) I would like to just reiterate what you're saying. We are seeing um, public opinion shifting on this towards greater acceptance and greater fear uh, about what the consequences of this might be. Um, Yale School of Public Health and George Mason University jointly do a tremendous amount of survey work on this, um, and they are sort of thought leaders in this area, and they run surveys on public opinions regarding Americans— Uh, views on climate change, and they are actually shifting um, towards belief and worry over this sort of thing over time. And I think that's because, you know, we feel things when they're local to us, right? It's a very natural human response to um, have urgency for things that directly affect us, Um, you know, ulterior motives and, you know, greater you know, philanthropic endeavors notwithstanding. And I think that what we're seeing is that the climate is changing in ways that people can feel it. If you look at the terrible fires that happened in the West in the last couple of years, if you look at the increasing power of hurricanes kind of ravaging the American Southwest year after year, um, if you look at crop failures and drought in the central part of the country, these things are not ethereal and far away, but the impacts of climate change are happening right now. And that tends to give people... You know, a greater understanding in terms of their personal impact in their day to day lives.
0: You know, I have to agree that anthropogenic climate change, you know, it, it will be abrupt and it's not centuries away, it's decades, if not years. I mean, we can point to things, and I'm sure, you know, I have personal stories with Katrina and also when I moved up here to the Mid Atlantic, I noticed I used to brag. To my family down south like oh i only need the air conditioned for probably a month up here but now even today i'm thinking wow here we go with our three month of air conditioning and how it's changed in just the 20 years i've been up here do you have something that you could point to maybe as a physician maybe your patients or six major areas or you, we were talking about that a little earlier uh that your patient panel is experiencing
1: no absolutely um, so we have looked at this um, in some of the work that I've done and with some colleagues, and there are really direct impacts in terms of human health. And so the clinical areas that we tend to focus on, um, you're correct, there are six of that they largely fall into. Um, and what I'd like to say before going into them is that it, one of the things that's really interesting is that none of these are particularly novel diseases or concepts. What we're seeing in clinical medicine are is really the exacerbation of known problems that climate change is going to throw at us. It's not gonna create new challenges, but it's gonna make existing challenges that we're already aware of so much harder to deal with and so much more prevalent, unfortunately, for the people we take care of. Probably the most obvious of those is heat-related illness, heat exhaustion and heat stroke, um, which exist along a continuum when your body can no longer properly thermoregulate because the outside air temperature is too hot to shed heat So your core temperature goes up um, internally, and that can cause all sorts of problems up to and including serious neurological disorders and cardiac arrests um, and severe severe dehydration. Um, The elderly are particularly vulnerable for this, and we've seen heat waves um, really expand in the last number of years. Ten of the 20 hottest years ever recorded going back to the 1880s are all, um, or excuse me, ten of the hottest years ever recorded uh, in the last century plus are all in the last 20 years. last year was wow. the fourth hottest year on record um, and I believe we're set to make records again this year
0: is that you know I say, I saw in India and there's been heat waves in Europe and we've seen you know 30,000 effective and I, I know even when I work as a clinician it's jammed in the ER anytime there's a heat wave uh, talk about maybe uh, uh, the lethal wet bulb temperature you know the human body becomes too hot and the humidity combined does that not cause like organ failure, and haven't we already begun to see a lot of this?
1: Yes. Um, so what you're referring to for your listeners and bulb, bulb temperature, when you think about um, uh, the feels-like temperature when you go to weather.com, that's a similar concept but for, for a human body. Uh. So what we, the way we shed heat through our skin is typically um, by sweating, but the sweat needs to actually evaporate to carry the heat away from it and convect um, additional heat energy out of our body to keep our core temperature cool and the bulb temperature takes into account the ambient humidity uh, which is increasing also uh, and that makes it more difficult for the body to shed heat. Um, as a result, it's more difficult to thermally regulate mm-hmm. your internal temperature um, and shed that excess heat. So the bulb temperature, uh, as it rises, make things more challenging. And you see this um, when, you know, storms knock out power and there's, you know, particularly like in nursing homes where there's a number of elderly people that are more susceptible to this um, and they have no air conditioning overnight, they are more much more susceptible to um, succumbing to dehydration and cardiac-related death as a result of heat waves. Uh, perhaps the most notorious one was the uh, the Chicago heat wave of 1995, um, where there was like a very significant excess mortality rate during the period uh, of the summer that year when the heat was very very high. And we see this regularly, especially in the American South, um, in the last couple of years, also. So those those things are increasing.
0: Absolutely, I think I saw and read a couple times where uh, in the pediatric population, a, a lot, you know, they they begin practicing with band and football in, in you know late August, September, and a lot of heat strokes and kids falling out from that. Um, so yes, uh, how about, I guess, respiratory is a big component of that, with particulate in the air and asthma.
1: Yes, so that comes in a couple of different forms. Respiratory and asthmatic diseases are sort of lumped together as one thing. Um, Mm -hmm. Certainly, there are a lot of plants that will pollinate and grow more aggressively as the carbon dioxide increases in the atmosphere and the temperature warms. So pollinating seasons are much longer and more aggressive than they used to be, uh, which is particularly a problem here in my native mid-Atlantic. Richmond, Virginia, has the highest rate of adults with asthma of any major city in the United States, Uh, and currently those trends are increasing. Uh, because of the massive pollen counts. Uh, ragweed, which is a continentally ubiquitous species, will actually uh, grow uh, in a world that is two degrees Celsius warmer than baseline temperatures from mid 20th century, um, can actually pollinate four or five times more aggressively than it would have. Um, so the amount of ragweed allergies, you know, my grandparents would have experienced are going to be nothing compared to what the future will <laughs> look like. And then, of course, there's the other side of it, which is respiratory and direct noxious stimulants as well. Because what's happening is is that, of course, greenhouse gases are being released by the combustion of fossil fuels. And it's those incomplete combustion products, especially nitrous and sulfur based products, that are harmful to the air. I mean, some of these things historically have caused, you know, acid rain, and we've cleaned them up to some degree. um, But they are actually really still increasing, and we're not like totally in control of them considering how much fuel we still burn. across the globe. And those things um, can contribute to the formation of ozone and smog, especially when there's a lot of heat and sunlight. And those are direct pulmonary irritants. They get into the lung beds and cause a lot of inflammation. So people that are have pre-existing like heart or lung disease, um, such as previous history of heart attacks and asthma um, and emphysema are particularly uh, challenged with that sort of thing. And you see those a lot affecting you know, impoverished populations and urban populations. Here in Arlington, Virginia, we have um, some of the worst air quality in the whole state of Virginia, and that is because we are very car-dependent and we are a very population-dense area, perhaps the densest in the whole state just being across the river from Washington, D.C. So those are all potentially like problems going forward um, that will get worse as well.
0: I'm I'm sure there's a whole grocery list. Speak to about the other areas too. There's a whole litany of problems with climate change.
1: Yeah, natural disasters will be made worse in the future. You mentioned that you had personal experience with Katrina. Uh, Global warming does not make hurricanes more frequent, but it does make them stronger and more violent. flooding and drought become real problems because under a warming climate scenario, what we end up with is fewer gentle kind of nourishing rains um, across the globe, but longer periods of drought without rain, uh, followed by aggressive periods of downpours and deluges, neither of which are particularly helpful for farming um, or water control. More constant, steady, gentle rains are much more easy to deal with and helpful for agriculture, and we are losing those, um, creating more flooding um, and drought situations, Uh, which leads to the fourth item, which is food instability. Agriculture is obviously a major component to human health, um, and in a situation where the planet warms by two degrees Celsius, it's possible that crop failures, particularly around staple products such as corn, could drop by at least 50 percent by the end of the century. Um, Some folks I have heard argue that CO2 is plant food, so everything will be just fine. Um, And I would like to to push back against that a little bit because the devil is in the details. Some plants will do a lot better um, under a higher CO2 atmospheric concentration, but they tend to be nuisance weeds and non-nutritious plants. And the plants that we rely on as humanity for agriculture um, need slower, more gentle growing seasons than are offered under a high CO2 concentration environment. They, of course, have evolved for millions of years to live at 270 parts per million, and they get easily mm-hmm. outcompeted by weeds and useless plants, or I should say more useless plants, um, when the parts per million go well over 400, which is what we're seeing now.
0: Yes, and, you know, the, the inability to grow grains at scale. I mean, this civilization... As with probably all previous civilizations, depend on the ability to grow, store, distribute our grains at scale. So if we don't have wheat, soybeans, or corn, you know this society is essentially toast. Um, yeah. I've heard the argument that as it warms, we can move you know the wheat belt further north into Canada. But what they're not taking into consideration is the the composition of the soil. So I'm looking at you know I hate to be a Debbie Downer here, but mass starvation. And I think the first world, I believe, has something only like a two to three week pad. I mean, that's pretty frightening. Food instability,
1: not a thick pad at all. Um, yeah, there's not a lot of additional surplus with that. Infectious disease is another major area that we would want to focus on. Um, the United States last had a um, last had a yellow fever outbreak in the 1920s in Mississippi. But in your native Philadelphia, there were yellow fever outbreaks at the time of the American Revolution um there those are, uh, yellow fever is carried by the same mosquito that carries zika um and chikungunya and other tropical diseases which you know briefly made a toehold here in the united states a few years ago and so as the planet warms the overwintering population of a lot of these mosquitoes um can actually increase its range, and they'll go farther and farther north. These things have been found in the subways of New York City. Now, we may not have full-blown yellow fever outbreaks again in the United States because we have much better mosquito abatement programs than we did a century or two ago. Um, But the Mm -hmm. idea that a warming planet will propagate the vectors, uh, the insect vectors and others, that uh, carry these diseases is actually really quite frightening. Uh, we've actually seen a lot of non cholera-style vibrio um, bacterial waterborne infections around the planet. In fact, there has been a precipitous rise of non vibrio cholera, or excuse me, non cholera vibrios. Um, Uh, Gastroenteritis in the North Sea and in the Balkan states. um, Oh wow! Excuse me, the the Baltic states, um, which is actually Uh really quite crazy because it doesn't seem like those waters should be warm enough to support um, some of those some of those uh, infectious diseases, but they are actually happening and increasing because the planet is warming so quickly. Um, The spread of tick-borne diseases and Lyme is a huge concern. Um, there are very few things that, like, a warming planet will do that are good with respect to controlling infectious diseases. Mm-hmm. The things that carry them will be able to spread more easily across the continents on which we live.
0: Yikes. It's pretty grim.
1: It is. It is. And all of this factors into the sixth and final thing, which is psychiatric Um Considerations, You know, increased levels of anxiety and depression, um, if not about the climate change itself and the massive loss of, of species um, that we are experiencing as a result of it, which causes people a lot of psychogenic stress, but also some of the direct um, health and food instabilities that it creates. You can't, you know, it's been very clearly shown that people after Hurricane Katrina being displaced from their homes um, and had to move, like even out of state, um, is a very stressful and depressing event. Um, If you're ravaged by hurricanes or floods or your livelihood is tied up in agriculture or in other uh, areas of the U.S. economy that are directly hit by this, Um, think about all the poor people and shop owners in Manhattan after Hurricane Sandy a number of years ago, Uh, the psychological impacts of this are very, very challenging um, and are very potentially dangerous as well. So we're seeing an increase of potential rates of this. I think some of the data is really preliminary, and you can't say for sure. Um, But some studies, including one in Mexico in the last couple of years, has shown that under the environmental stresses of particularly warm years, that there is a gentle uptick in suicide rates as well as people lose livelihoods and are stressed out um, by the direct impacts of a changing climate on them, which is really, really unfortunate and something we need to keep in mind.
0: You know, it's just, I mean, I, you know, I have a battery-operated lawnmower, and we have a victory garden we've had for years, and uh, most of my family are uh, pescatarians, you know, we do fish, mostly vegetarian, you know. Uh, I really don't, and I feel like, you know, we recycle, we do everything, which it seems so inconsequential. I mean, it seems important, but it seems so minor. I. So, what is the grant? What can we do about all this? Okay, it's it's here, and we see its effects. Uh, What can we do beyond individual stuff? I just feel like it's just not enough.
1: Yeah, it's a good point. I would say vote. I would say get involved. Um, (laughs) Think global and act local. Um, You know, there are a number of uh, nonprofit, nonpartisan organizations like Citizens Climate Lobby that have local chapters like all over the country that you can join to try to promote local change. Uh, and I think a lot of that speaks to your larger point that individual action is fantastic and we absolutely encourage it, um, but it's impossible to really make strong headway into this issue without central and federal leadership. Um, so, for example, I, I hear you. We uh, keep vegetarian at home and I ride my bike to work and we have all LED bulbs and we own a 900-square-foot townhouse here. <laughs> um, mm-hmm. And my carbon footprint, while you know, a, a good... 20% less than the average American is still four times the world average. <laughs>
0: <Just> yeah. <back. laughs> well, I feel like, I, you know, we're making progress, but it's like you can almost hear the ferns turn into coal in the background. Like, we need a massive change. Like, all of a sudden, say, right. every car has got to be electric in five years or some, something, some kind of leadership has yeah. to happen. Yeah.
1: So one of the things that's interesting is is that this past year renewables uh, surpassed coal in terms of their gigawatt energy production in the United States, which is a major milestone. Now, coal is still a big player, and natural gas still accounts for more gigawatt production than renewables, so we have a lot of room to grow. But as a result, our energy sector in the United States, in terms of utility-scale generation, is now used to be our number one producer of carbon with respect to our national carbon footprint. And that has fallen now to second place. Uh, because of the fall of coal and the rise of renewables, which is encouraging. Um, But what has taken over as the number one um, source emitter is transportation. Um, And that is largely due to um, SUV um, purchasing, which now represents about 40 percent of the United States automobile fleet. Ten years ago, it was only half of that. So the gains that we've made in terms of engine efficiency and rolling out electric cars and hybrids has been offset by the purchase of larger vehicles. Um So there are consumer behaviors that really matter here um, with respect to reducing your carbon footprint. But short of national, federal action and aggressive phasing out of the use of fossil fuel-based energy sources, um, it's going to be hard to get to the finish line where we need to go. But certainly, you know, people that go vegetarian, they, that can just eliminate... 60 plus percent of your dietary carbon footprint, uh, transportation matters tremendously, home energy efficiency matters. All of these are things that we can take uh, take stock in while also, I think, trying to force our local and national leaders to be more aggressive in moving us towards a cleaner future.
0: You know, I think I saw a white paper um, after 9-11 when, you know, the skies and a lot of the transportation stopped, you know, we... CO two levels dropped, and I, I believe something to, something similar happened in the initial shutdown uh, from COVID nineteen, um, and I'm talking about what they call the the albedo effect, and that's keeping the temperatures down. And it's it's rather ironic that the reflective pollutants that we spew daily are keeping reflecting and keeping the temperatures down. It's it's almost like uh, a scary catch twenty two. If we stop polluting, and the temps will soar, or if we keep polluting. And we're increasing c o two some of it call some people call it the aerosol masking effect um uh, it's so a lot of it is uh i feel like we're kind of being painted into a corner here and uh you know well that got pretty dark quickly anyway <laughs> <laughs> uh, yeah and another yeah I, I don't know how you feel about that or uh what you see out there it, we're all working remote during covid and we're not having the massive uh you know, rush hour traffic and things like that. I wonder if on some level it's being measured or, you know, the metrics are being studied.
1: I suspect they are, um, and we'll find more about this. usually takes a good year um, to look back on some of the stuff because these global calculations in terms of gas emissions are— laborious. (laughs) laborious. <laughs> they take some work to put together, um, but I suspect people are working on them. But what you're talking about in terms of the albedo effect is, is reflective surface, right? Things that bounce sunlight um, and infrared light back into deep space so it doesn't warm the planet. And some of the, um, the side products of combustion of fossil fuels, such as like um, sulfate products, have uh, a high albedo. They're very reflective um, You see this actually in periods in uh, recorded past where there are major volcanic eruptions that spew a lot of natural sulfate-based compounds into the atmosphere. And then there's a temporary period of Uh months to a year of planetary cooling. We get a little bit of a reprieve. Um, But you also don't want to pump a lot of sulfates into the air because then you get back into a 1980s acid rain situation. So it's kind of, you know damned if you do, damned if you don't kind of thing. Um, And this has been talked about in a critical situation later in the century. Can we geoengineer the atmosphere by putting particulate matter high up to reflect um, energy back out into deep space? Um, But that's kind of a moonshot and may have a lot of unintended and potentially catastrophic consequences. So nobody's actively rushing to do that right now, but it has been talked about um, in scientific circles. I, I think... In general, what we probably really need to do is just clean up our act and then deal with the consequences as we go forward because it is not a tenable situation to continue to burn um, so much carbon and put all of that CO2 into the atmosphere. Um, And if that means cutting out some of the other compounds that do have a high albedo and uh, and somewhat protective effect like aerosols and sulfates, then um, we will have to come up with another solution for that going forward.
0: Yeah, those are major, as you say, engineering moonshots. I saw something somewhere, a white paper about, uh, in fact, it was a Yale climate scientist that wanted to string mirrors in the ocean, um, among other things. But uh, since we're living in COVID times, how is COVID-19 focusing our attention on this whole climate change?
1: Yeah, I I worry a little bit that it has distracted us from it, um, and with good reason, because COVID is actually a major deal and quite scary. I think there has been, in astute policy circles, really clever talk about restarting global economies by focusing uh, on renewable energy and doubling down um, on various federal supports to put people to work in those areas. So, for example, in the United States, there are more than 100,000 people that are now employed um, in the wind sector alone. Uh, And there's only 50,000 coal miners left in the United States, down from about a million a century ago. So and as wind grows and coal shrinks, it would seem a prudent bet to put federal resources down to expand wind farms and subsidize wind-based jobs, for example, as the economy restarts. Uh, and that would be a real opportunity moving forward to put people back to work and to clean up the environment and secure long-term health as the century moves along as well, which would, be, I think, be a very clever solution.
0: Wow, there's so much to ponder, and um, I hope it all plays out for mankind. I, you know, I always have hope. Uh, I think that's the high road to take, and I guess doing little incremental stuff in your area and uh, trying to force leadership in, in major you know, climate change strides legislation or, or, or technology. I, I almost feel like sometimes technology is the only thing that's going to save us at times. Uh, so, Dr. Burke, listen, it was great having you on today's podcast, Focus on Pocus. Uh, it's an honor, and we thank you for all you do, for the climate and for patience. You have a great day. Thanks for talking with us. And uh enjoy your summer. Thank
1: you, James. You enjoy it as well. I really appreciated this and I would like to say to your point definitely have hope. The situation is is dire and requires you know immediate action um, but this is America, and we can definitely do it. That is the the patriotic and the the practical health stance that we can take here. We can do this
0: yeah, and another thing you uh, um, the family med conference was in um, Chicago this year I pro- probably not going to happen. I think it was October in You know, do you want to talk about your community action within embedded within that organization, your climate uh, community? Sure.
1: So I am a a member of the American Academy of Family Physicians, and the academy hosts several dozen what they call member interest groups or MIGs that are focused on specific areas Mm -hmm. in clinical medicine. Uh, And I am currently the chair of the Climate Change and Environmental Health MIG um, that has about 150 members within the academy, and we focus on pushing the Academy to have stronger stances on um, combating climate and putting forward um, positions and advocating for uh, change that redresses climate change and the burning of fossil fuels because climate change is so intimately linked to negative impacts on human health. Um, So if there's any family docs that are listening out there, uh, go to the MIG page uh, off AFP.org and sign up. Um, It is free, and we would love to have as many people as possible.
0: All right, Dr. Burr. Thank you much. And also, for more POCUS style topics, follow us on Facebook at POCUS CERT Academy and Twitter at POCUS Academy. Thank you so much for all your enlightening discussion and what you do for us. Thank you, James. Take care. Thanks for listening. Be sure to join us at Twitter at POCUS Academy and Facebook at POCUS Cert Academy. If you'd like to learn more about the POCUS community, visit us at POCUSWorld.org. Take a look at participating in our POCUS 25 research. Help contribute to the scientific development of the top 25 point-of-care ultrasounds. And we'll see you next time. The thoughts and opinions expressed in this podcast are the views and opinions of the guests and not those of Intelios. This podcast is for information purposes only.